You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Tonight's scripture reading is found in Leviticus chapter 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness for Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense, beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil. And put the incense of the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger in the front of the mercy seat on the east side, and in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins, And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it 
and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat, and Aaron shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and, and shall take off the linen garments, and he shall put on uh, that he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement for the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned with, up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And it shall be a statute for you, to you forever, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves, and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting, and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests, and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Spirit, we pray now that even in this passage of Leviticus that you might lift our eyes to Jesus. We pray that you might set us free for love and service, that you might make his hands, Jesus' hands and his heart be ours. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. You may finally be seated. Uh, two weeks in a row of long ones, and especially on a day like this where I feel like a southern preacher where I need like a handkerchief. Uh, so I might do this a couple times uh, today. Uh, we hope that next week might be the week that First United Methodist actually makes the uh, summer AC switchover, uh, and next week will be a little cooler than this one. Uh, but man, what a passage. I wanted Annie to read that whole thing. This is, well, just over the years, there have been several times when preaching through a book that I've called a particular paragraph or even a particular sentence, uh, kind of like a, a continental divide. 
Uh, you know what, a, what the continental divide is. Uh, like there's a line, there is a ridge, especially um, in the western part of our continent, like on the Rocky Mountains, where you, if you dropped a few drops of water uh, on the very top, some might go this way, some might go this way. Some might, if they go this way, they might end up in the Pacific Ocean. Well, they will into the Pacific Ocean. If they go this way, they will eventually end up into the Gulf of Mexico and into the Atlantic. Well, Leviticus 16 is one of the most important biblical continental divides. I wanted Annie to read all of it. It is not only the central focal point of the book of Leviticus, it is the center point of this book, uh, even just words, the amount of words on either side of it. Uh, but it is the continental divide for the entire Torah, the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Leviticus 16 describes the Day of Atonement, or as you might still hear it, hear it called, even today, by uh, the Jewish holiday Yom Kippur. Yom, the the Hebrew word of day in Kippur, the, day, the, the uh, word for atonement. And so we might say that everything from Genesis 1-1 leading up to uh, or Leviticus 16 flows to this point. It finds its climax here, and then everything in the second half of Levit Leviticus through Numbers, through De Deuteronomy, flows from what you just heard read. And so we're going to think through this monumental chapter under three headings tonight. First, a substitute in God's presence, a substitute away from God's presence, and then a priest for God's people in God's presence. All right? There's lots of substitution going on here today. I told a friend from another church that I was uh, going to be preaching Leviticus 16 tonight, and he said, oh, you're going to preach about Jesus then? Oh, yes, we're going to do that. All right, so a substitute in God's presence. In reading verse 1, we find out that the last four chapters that we thought about last week, about cleanness and uncleanness, actually break up the timeline of the narrative. It's a pretty sparse narrative through the book of Leviticus, but it's broken up. We read in verse 1, 16, 1, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. Now, that word after could mean any time after. But this seems to pick up the narrative right where we left it off in chapter 10. There, in chapter 10, God came to Aaron after his sons Nadab and Abihu died when they cavalierly entered into the holy place of the tabernacle on their terms rather than God's. God came to Aaron and gave him a new and even more explicit commands and expectations for the priesthood. And so now, here in chapter 16, God likewise comes to Aaron's brother Moses giving him commands for what Aaron is meant to do in the holy place, unlike what his sons have done. So why, then, the interjection in the narrative? Why break up this narrative? Why all this strange stuff that we considered last week about animals and skin diseases and bodily discharges? Well, everything last week was about clean versus unclean. We thought about how humanity has polluted the earth Rather than acting as God's conduit of his life and light, we reject that role and instead become a polluting source of darkness and death. And so the natural state of the world and of humanity is that of being unclean, that of being not fit for God's presence. So God calls a people. The, story, the narrative of the story before Leviticus 16 is that of God calling a people to himself and by covenant making them into a new people whose now default state is that of being clean. But that default state, as we considered last week, must be maintained. And that default state is actually not the end goal. 
They are to move, God's people, they are to move from their state of cleanness to that of holiness. Be holy as I am holy, God says. Rather than later generations of Israel's history, even the Pharisees in Jesus' day, who had made the clean state of following the law like the in and of itself. Just following the law and being clean was the goal of Jewish living, many had come to understand. So Leviticus is setting the stage for an understanding of living as God's people for his presence and his purposes. And before we move any further, can we just talk about the holiness of God for just a minute? Without understanding God's holiness, I don't think that we'll understand the rest of this chapter. I don't think that we'll understand the rest of this book or the rest of the Bible. Holiness has come on hard times lately. In some circles of Christian culture, God's holiness is there, but it kind of maybe needs to be apologized for. Like, yeah, we're not quite sure why God is so distinct or different, but I guess he is. In other theological streams, God actually is not different than us. He or she is described in ways which are usually just more patient or kind versions of ourselves. But even for those of us who can pride ourselves in our like, classic Orthodox Trinitarian theology and doctrine, because we are human, we every day minimize the holiness of God. We get it all wrong. To again use the metaphor, we often look down the well, and the God that we see in the reflection is just a pale imitation of ourselves. This is not the God of the Bible. The triune God who has created all things and knows all things and is sovereign over all things is completely and utterly other than us. Have you ever seen uh, any of those YouTube videos of someone out kayaking in the ocean in the Pacific Northwest? And you can, you can go out and if you get really lucky, lucky, you might have a humpback whale or even pods of humpback whales come up and crest right next to these kayakers. It's wild. Like, even watching these things on YouTube, it, like, makes your heart beat a little fast. I've never done this and likely never will, but I can imagine the conflicting emotions that these kayakers must feel. Like, your heartbeat would get fast. You might get shaky. Sweaty palms on the, on the oar, the paddle. Well, why, though? Why does the heartbeat naturally just get faster? Because most of us will never experience anything on this earth as large, as powerful, as majestic as that creature, that humpback whale. You would likely just stop paddling altogether and just sit there in awe. Awful. You know this word? The original meaning of the word? Full of awe. As you are paddling on the Pacific Ocean, and a humpback whale or seven come around you, it would be an awful moment. But because of the power and the awe of the whale, you would also use and treat this moment with this creature with respect, even with reverence. Why? Well, with one, in a one-second flip of a flipper, or a one-second rollover of the body, dead we humans would be. Now, compare that experience times about a trillion, and this is the kind of experience that Isaiah is fumbling through words with in Isaiah 6. The angelic hosts are all singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. An utterly awful moment. 
Annie Dillard once wrote, on the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT just to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets, she says. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. Now, of course, as we'll consider, the New Testament realities of Christ that brings Christians into confident realities of assurance and belonging, that's certainly true. But you want to let that sentence just start to sink down into your imaginations for a week or for a decade? Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Goodness me. It's been asked, I'm so glad Kyle drew attention to the three times repeated word of holy to God, but it's been asked, what three times repeated attribute of God do you think our churches or our worship or our own hearts and minds would be most inclined to highlight? Holy, holy, holy? Maybe loving, 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 patient, 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 gracious, gracious, gracious. Maybe even angry, angry, angry. Now all of those are true or can be true. And everything that we thought about from 1 John 4 is still true, that God is love. His very character is love and all of his actions flow out of his triune character of love. And yet, at the very same time, safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So Mr. Beaver says from the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Our God is a consuming fire. He is not a reflection of ourselves. He is distinctly other. He is not even a humpback whale who is a creature Think about that word, creature. God is the create or the creator. He is outside of us. Not unexplainably deciding to just flip a flipper. No, God is good. Whatever you think of as moral and right, God, his character is the straight plumb line down that he has revealed that his character and his righteousness even more specifically would reveal that all of this is grace, that he has revealed himself is grace, that he invites us to know him, invites us to love him, invites us to be loved by him, to be known and adopted by him is all grace. But I assure you, when entering into God's presence, your heart will overflow with holy, holy, holy. You will not need to think back what was that song that we always sang? What did Isaiah say in Isaiah 6? I can't quite remember. No. The immediate response of worship when we come into the presence of God, that of holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now, back to Leviticus 16. Just like the people could defile the state of the camp by being unclean, as we thought of last week, the unclean dead bodies of Nadab and Abihu and their unclean worship have defiled the holy place, the place of the tabernacle. So this original day of atonement, this original Yom Kippur, is 
specific instruction for how to cleanse that defiled tabernacle, how to cleanse the holy place in specific response to how Nadab and Abihu had defiled it earlier that day. But we'll see how this then explodes and applies to the whole nation of God's people. So what is the instruction? The order of everything here repeats itself and is sometimes hard to follow, but it's simply this, that Aaron, the high priest, is going to bring a sin offering of a bull for himself. He's going to then bring two goats as a ritual of elimination, and then he is going to bring a burnt or an ascension offering of a ram, one for himself and one for the people. That's the whole chapter, and we just jumped straight to the end. So let's actually back it up now and consider this first substitute for God's presence. We've already considered sin offerings of atonement from the first week that we were uh, together in Leviticus, but remember that the sin offering uh, both acts as a ransom, and remember a ransom is the guilty offering, or the guilty party offering payment to the innocent party, unlike ransoms that we typically try to describe today in which the innocent pay the guilty, but there's more than that. When the priest leans his hands on the head of this substitute, this animal of sacrifice, leaning his hands on this animal, a double transfer is happening in which his sin of death is now given or imputed to the animal and in which the unblemished life of the animal is now given or imputed to him. There is a double transfer, a double imputation of death to life back and forth. But one last thing happens here that the lifeblood of this substitutionary animal then cleanses the priest's un, or ceremonial uncleanness and even the immoral impurity of this person or these people of their polluted death. So, ever since Adam, God's people have been exiled away to the east, away from God's presence because of their rejection of him. The story leading up to Leviticus is then God calling a people back from the east to his presence, of calling Abram back to himself and covenanting himself when he's come back from the east. And here, this entire tabernacle structure is oriented with its opening to the east. We have a picture there, Patrick? Yeah. Or who's up there? Matt. That door facing like where we're looking at it is towards the east. No matter where they would move, it would always be opening to the east. And so when the high priest, in this case Aaron, comes from the sphere of the people and approaches the tabernacle, he is walking to the west, closer to the presence of God, a re-entrance into Eden. As he gets closer, he must seek atonement or at-one-ment with God. You don't just walk back into Eden and say, what's up? I'm back. That's what Nadab and Abihu did. We see what happened to them. So after making the sin offering for himself and the people at the altar, this big box with horns coming out of the side, Aaron then leads two identical and unblemished goats up to the entrance of the tent. We don't know exactly how he is to cast lots. Moses tells Aaron that he is to cast lots, um, likely with his umim and thurim stones. We don't even really know what those are and how he was supposed to use these. Uh, but he essentially, by casting lots, flips a coin. Verse 8, one lot for the Lord and one lot for Azazel. One goat for the Lord and one goat for Azazel. We'll get to Azazel in just a minute. But this first goat, the lot falling on this first goat, is for the Lord. This goat belongs to him. 
We'll get to this goat in just a minute. Aaron doesn't yet kill the goat, but having this kind of priestly hazmat suit on, his holy priestly garment, he presumably takes a deep breath and he enters. He walks inside the tent with the blood of the sin offering from the bull that he has already sacrificed at the altar, and he enters and might see something like this. Here there is a golden lampstand that is to always stay burning, perhaps representing the tree of life, perhaps representing the seven days of the creation work. We, we don't really know. And then there's a table over on the right. As we learn in Leviticus 25, that 12 loaves of bread and two rows of six are placed on this table, likely indicating the 12 tribes of Israel. All of the people are symbolically at a continual covenantal meal of peace with God, full of bread and drink. And then an altar of incense, which Aaron uses to create this hazy and sweet-smelling cloud, which would shield his eyes from seeing the glory of God beyond the curtain. That, as Leviticus 16 tells us, so that he will not die. And then, having done all of these things and entered this place, Aaron, now taking a very deep breath, because while he and the priests were continually working and keeping the holy place, this outside room, here Aaron is now walking past the angelic beings, the seraphim on the curtain. The symbolic Garden of Eden, which they are guarding the place of God's presence, and he walks through in space, but almost he almost walks back in time into Genesis 1 and 2 the immediate presence of God. He enters the most holy place, the holy of holies. And so as we considered a few years ago in Exodus, unlike the way that is portrayed in Raiders of the Lost Ark, there's nothing inherently magical, spiritual, or even powerful about the box itself. And it was never used as a weapon. Uh, In fact, unlike the movie, God's presence didn't even live inside it. Certainly weird and scary spirits, certainly ghosts did not live inside this box. But God's presence, remember, as we might have considered way back in Acts 17, a year or so ago, God's presence cannot be not only contained in a temple, much less a box. God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. And yet in Isaiah 66, God says that heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Three or four other times in the Old Testament, the ark itself, the ark of the covenant is referred to as God's footstool. And so the ark is like maybe an ancient king's footstool. For when he sat on his throne and he sits in judgment over his people, the ark is the earthly connection to how and where God closely and nearly sits, reigns, rules over his people as their judge and as their king. He is not inside the box, I assure you. This box, this ark of the covenant, is a middle ground airlock the middle place between the earthly and the divine. And so, like we considered last week, the holy presence of the creator God of the universe will not inhabit, even with his feet, a place of uncleanness, a place of impurity or pollution. Otherwise, that place would be utterly consumed. Our God is a consuming fire. And so Aaron purifies this holy place, this most holy place of the ark, He purifies the mercy seat, or just the lid of the ark, with the blood of his sin offering. He sprinkles the eastern side, the place of his coming into contact with God. 
And then, after doing all that, he comes back outside the tent, and he kills the first goat. He uses the blood of the goat to do the same and then purify not just the mercy seat and the places inside the most holy place, but he also then purifies all the elements of the holy place, the the lampstand and the table and the incense altar. The high priest, with a substitute of life and death, has entered into Eden, like Adam, with skins of an animal covering his shame and his uncleanness. And as a new Adam, he is working and keeping the garden in God's presence and on God's behalf. Chapter 16, verse 31, even describes this, what's happening in Eden language. Look at verse 31. Our ESV says that it, the day of atonement, is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you. But that is literally just, it is a Sabbath of Sabbaths. Solemn rest. Like the holy of holies, or the song of songs, the most holy of all holy things, or the song that is above all songs, the day of atonement is a Sabbath day of resting and belonging to God of all Sabbath days of resting and belonging to God. This day of atonement is the Sabbath of all Sabbaths in which the people can rest in their belonging to God. The animals of substitutionary sacrifice have brought the priest into God's presence. But if the substitute has brought the priest into God's presence, secondly now, there is another substitute who is sent away from God's presence. Let's look at this one. Secondly now, let's read verses 20 through 22 again. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of the man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. So the priest comes out, and he puts both hands on this goat's head, and he confesses all of the guilt, all of the rebellion, all of the sin of the entire nation over this goat. Now, before I say anything else, uh, just because I know several of you are going to ask me, I don't know what Azazel means, all right? So don't ask. Uh, Because here's the deal, no one knows what it means. Uh, If you've ever seen the very, very creepy 90s movie with Denzel Washington, uh, Azazel is the name of a demon, like this arch demon. Uh, It could be that Azazel is the name of some Canaanite god out in the wilderness. Azazel might be the name of an actual place in the wilderness. It may just be a word that uh, just means destruction or a word that means being sent away. So this goat is for Azazel. It is for destruction. Or this goat is for Azazel. It is for being sent away. Uh, Scholars, linguists, and historians just don't know. So I don't know either. Uh, That's that. Now, whatever the word may mean, the symbolism is very clear. It may be obvious, but this is where we get our word, our English word, of a scapegoat. A scapegoat is someone, a person who gets blamed for the faults of an entire team or a corporation. So here, Aaron is symbolically loading all of the sins of Israel onto this one goat. Now, while the timeline and narrative of this drawn-out ceremony breaks things up, this goat is actually meant to be identified with the other goat. It's like they're twins. 
They look exactly the same, and while they carry out different functions, they are actually like two sides of the same sacrificial coin. The second goat, now loaded with the sins of an entire nation, is led out from the presence of God out into the east, out through the concentric circles of the tabernacle structure, through the clean places of the camp, out into the periphery where the unclean were waiting to re-enter the camp, and then finally led out into the utter chaotic wilderness, the pre-Genesis 1 waters of chaos and death. That is where the goat is sent. And remember what we thought about from week one, that if Leviticus is actually about people ascending the mountain of the Lord, ascending to the place of God's presence, and that the Holy of Holies, as a new Eden, is a mountain garden in which the priest now climbs up that he might meet with God, then as Michael Morales describes, this goat's eastward trek out of the camp, out of God's presence, is actually a descent down the mountain of God, carrying the sins of the people out to die in the wilderness. So these twin, go- these twin goats, we might even say this one goat, is simultaneously accomplishing two functions through its atoning death. The first is that of purification, cleansing so that the people might continue in their default state of cleanness, of being fit for God's presence. But then the second function is, now here's a big word, a big theological word, expiation. Expiation, to expiate something means just to send out, to send away. So this second goat, or the other side of this goat coin, is carrying away, is sending away the sin of God's people. So through substitutionary death, the two sides of the coin, this goat brings to Israel cleansing from sin's pollution and removal from sin's guilt. It's likely on the Day of Atonement that David is later reflecting in Psalm 103 when he says, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. To the east, the place of exile and chaotic wilderness judgment. To the west, the place of God's presence. God is the one who removes, sends out, separates us from our sin, that he might once again take us back in, separated, that he might give grace, that he might give justice, that he might redeem. And so what started as a cleansing ceremony for the pollution of Nadab and Abihu, now every year then, verse 29 to the end of the chapter make clear, the high priest is to perform this day of ritual cleansing and removal every year, after which the deathly remains of the bull and the goat are taken outside of the camp to be burned up. Then the priest offers an ascension offering for himself and for the people. But because of the work of the priest, through substitutionary death, the entire people then symbolically ascend to the place of the presence of God, ascend and worship to the heavens, the place of God's full dwelling, not just his footstool that they can then corporately do it again next year, and then the next year, and then the next year, and then the next year, 
and the next year, and the next year, and the next year. But it's clear that the priest does represent the people. Remember, as we talked about a few weeks ago, the priest has two stones on his shoulders, each with six names of the 12 tribes of Israel on his shoulders, and he has an an ephod, an apron, with 12 stones, one with the name of each of the 12 tribes of Israel. He walks into the holy place, and he does his temple work literally with the names of the people on his shoulders and over his heart. He is bringing them into the presence of God. And so now that we've considered the substitutionary deaths of these sacrifices in the presence of God and away from the presence of God, now lastly, let's just turn our attention to this priest. A priest for the people in God's presence. The priest has indeed brought not just himself, but the people into God's presence. And through this priestly work of mediation on behalf of God and on behalf of the people, God says of all this in Exodus 29, he says, there I will meet with the people of Israel and they shall be sanctified by my glory, that he might make them like him. By his presence, by his glory, he might make them holy, sanctify them. He might make them into people who are like the distinctly other character of himself for his purposes, for their own joy to live in the freedom of how he has created humans to live in the first place, and for the clarity of his holy character before the nations. But this holy place, this holy place of where all the lampstands and tables are, it's just a 15 by 30 foot rectangle. And the most holy place is a 15 by 15 foot adjoining square. So we're talking like 45 feet long. That's it. Hardly a picture of the biblical vision of the whole earth being filled with his glory. And what the high priest did every year and then kept having to do and kept having to do wasn't sufficiently or wasn't sufficient to transformatively cleanse the people. Through the work of one man, this ritualistic work gave the people a collective hazmat suit that they might live in the presence of God and not die by him, but it didn't transform them into a people who could now live and be completely energized by the plutonium rather than be killed by its incredible power and glory. And so a few weeks ago, we considered John 1, how John understood Jesus to have tabernacled among us how Jesus was the fullness of the entire tabernacle structure and system. Peter himself once kind of had an Isaiah 6-like moment of his own when he encounters the distinct and other glory and holiness of God in the person of Jesus. When he said, just like Isaiah, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And after the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the New Testament writers looked back, on, looked back on his life and ministry and saw the place of the tabernacle. It's like as if the sun is setting on Good Friday and as Jesus is hanging on the cross, the shadow that you see on the ground, the sun is, the sun is setting, Jesus is hanging on the cross, and the shadow that you see cast on the ground is that of the tabernacle. This is what's happening. The author of the letter to the Hebrews thinks that the tabernacle is an earthly copy, a shadow of something heavenly that is going on. In Hebrews 9, the author has been talking about all the blood and the rooms of the tabernacle, and he says this, 
Read this with me. Hang in there with me. This is Hebrews 9. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, like Aaron did every year or the high priest did every year, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, like we said last week, that Jesus is the tabernacle. He is the mobile temple structure, the presence of God walking around and dwelling with his people. All of it. He is all of that. He is the bread, the lampstand, the water outside. He is all of it, not just for Israel, but now for the entire world. Or as we considered on Easter in Genesis 22, God provided a substitute of sacrifice for just one man, for Abraham, instead of his son Isaac. In Exodus 12, God provided a substitute of sacrifice for just one family, each family in Egypt in the Passover. Here in Leviticus 16, God provides a substitute of sacrifice for the nation in this day of atonement. But in John 1, we read that God provides a substitute of sacrifice for the whole world. God the Son offering himself to the entire world. He is the Revelation 5 and Revelation 7 lion who is also the lamb who was slain. He is the one who is worthy to open the scroll of God's word of salvation and judgment. He, Jesus Christ the righteous, is worthy. Amen? But just as Jesus is the Lamb of God, the bloody sacrifice who dies on behalf of his people in Hebrews 9, then, man, it's like the writer of Hebrews is just mixing metaphors all over the place. Because then he says, well, he's also the great high priest. He works on behalf of the people in consecrated and holy worship as their intercessor, as their mediator, on behalf of God and on behalf of the people. Jesus himself is the middle ground the meeting place. Jesus himself is the tabernacle. Jesus himself is the airlock between the earthly and the divine. He works and worships in purity and life with the names of his people on his shoulders and over his heart. Here's the thing. Jesus, your great high priest, did not go to the cross to make you savable. He went to the cross with names, with your name. If you are trusting in him with your life, then you can actually and confidently sing what we've sung, that my name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. Why? I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. He's got me. Nothing else can tell me to go away. 
I do not need to be sent out into the wilderness because he has done that for me. Not because of your holiness or your perfect and spotless life and worship, but because before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. Christian, you experience life and joy in God, not because of the things that you do, not because of the quality of your worship. The triune God himself has grabbed hold, has laid his hands on his people, and has eternally secured them in salvation in giving them his very life. He has given them the Sabbath of all Sabbaths. We find value, we find rest, we find security and belonging, not in what we do, but in who we are, belonging to him. Jesus himself, our great high priest, has taken hold of us. He both cleanses the pollution of sin from our hearts and minds, but also then removes the guilt of our sin from our heads and our hands. He ascends the mountain of the Lord where he is coronated as king on the throne of his cross high and lifted up. But the glory of Jesus is that while he is our great high priest, he is simultaneously our substitutionary sacrifice. While he is the priest who grabs hold of us, will we lay both of our hands pressing on, the, on his head, loading him with all of our sin and our rebellion and our guilt, with all that we have, that he might carry it away? Christian, God does not love you more in the event that you would just stop sinning. That you would just get it together. He chooses to remember our sin no more as far as the east is from the west. How? Through the tabernacle work of atonement that Jesus accomplishes on the cross. God chooses to remember our sins no more as far as the east is from the west. But so what? So what? I should have just had Annie read Leviticus 16 and then just come up here and just read the book of Hebrews. This, the book of Hebrews is just one giant sermon basically on Leviticus. But there, in Hebrews 13, the author gives us all something just to hang our hats on on what the point of all this is. Not only that we should have confidence in the inner, inner courts of God, Hebrews 10, which I would just summarize, since we're doing Chronicles of Narnia quotes already, I would just summarize as Hebrews 10 with the words of Jewel the unicorn, uh, with further up and further in, everybody. Up we go, up the mountain of God, and in we go deeper into his presence. That's Hebrews 10. Not one person once a year, but all of us together forever through the one man, Jesus Christ. But... Hebrews 13 says this, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, 
for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now that the priestly work of Jesus is completed, what is our work of spiritual sacrifice? Lips that praise him. Doing good to others for his sake. Sharing what we have. Sharing our time, our resources, our counsel, our love. That's priestly work. That's sacrificial work. He has freed us from self-centered lives that just collapse in on themselves. And he has freed us to a God-centered life that explodes out for the good of each other and for the nations who remain in darkness to see him clearly. Why? Because he is worthy. He is worthy of our worship. Is he worthy? He is worthy. So this week in your GCs, this week in your journals or your prayer life, Hebrews 13 is a deep and wonderful place to now let this finished work of Christ not find its end in you. To go through us for the glory of Christ, for our spiritual worship, for the clarity of his character to the nations around us, further up and further in everyone, up into the presence of God, into the presence of God. Let's do it all together. Let's pray. Our God, we are so thankful that you have revealed yourself, that you are not just a powerful and a sovereign God. That alone is not worthy of our worship and our love, but that you are a loving God. You are powerful and sovereign, but you have revealed yourself to us in word and in action and in yourself as a God of love. Help us to just swim more deeply. Help us to love you with our whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. Help us to love each other, to share what we have with, other, with, with each other as acts of spiritual worship. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are both priest and sacrifice, that you have loved us to the end, but that the grave did not keep you, but that you are working even on our behalf as we speak. Help us to work to the end of your return for the glory of your kingdom and for the good of our own hearts and minds, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.